Welcome to the Final Draft Podcast. My name's Andrew Popel. Today, I'm joined on the podcast by Holly Throsby. Now, the Final Draft Podcast explores books, writing, and literary culture. Every week, I broadcast a show called Final Draft. It's from the studios of 2SER in Sydney. At Final Draft, we are dedicated to exploring Australian writing, whether it's debut authors to the established classics that you know and love, you know, the kind that you just you come back to, comfort reads. In each of our conversations, we look at the issues that drive the author's storytelling. It's a way to help you discover more about the books that you love, because these are the stories that make us who we are. To us, you'll broadcast from the lands of the Gadigal people. I record on the lands of the Darug and Gunungurra people, and I want to acknowledge the traditional owners of those lands and pay my respects to their ongoing connection to their lands, acknowledging that these are unceded lands and treaty has never been made with Australia's First Nations. As I mentioned today, I am joined by Holly Throsby. Holly is a, a singer, songwriter, a novelist. Her new novel is Clark, and much like her previous novels, we are going back into the, uh, I'm going to call it the extended Holly Throsby universe, the, the sort of rural uh, setting of her novels, the region, to a mystery, a mystery of a missing person as the police arrive one day to dig up a backyard. This is everything that I love about Holly's novels, about her songs. So join me as we discover Holly Throsby's Clark. That's Goddess. Hello, Holly. Hi, how are you? I'm very well. How are you? I'm good, thank you. I just got back from walking my dog. I'm even wearing my treat with um, my main my bum bag with dog treats, which I'll take. <laughs> I'll take off. That's fabulous. <laughs> I just got done wrestling my cat for you know who gets to sit on the keyboard and um, <laughs> and the like. Um, so yeah, like shared shared morning experiences. It looks warmer where you are though. It is really warm out there. Well, I just was also walking, but yeah, it is warm. It's it's very nice. That's nice. Nobody's um nobody's tapped the Blue Mountains on the shoulder and told them it's almost summer. Oh, you're in the mountains. I'm in the mountains now. Last time we met was in the studio, and I, I remember I, that. Yeah, I just assumed you were going to be in Sydney. No, um, like so many of us, yeah, no, no, no longer in Sydney. Thank yeah. you, thank you so much for taking the time today. Oh, of course, yeah. Clark is gorgeous. Thank you. I'm excited to to talk about this book. Let's set it up. Um, it's so beautiful and simple to set up. Barney Clark is woken by a knock on the door. A veritable platoon of police have arrived to execute a search warrant on his house and backyard. Next door, Leonie observes the police's arrival and thinks to herself that they're six years too late to help her missing friend, Ginny Lawson. Holly... Clark takes us back to the Gather region in the 90s. Your fictional extended universe is now three books strong, and I'm hoping there are many more to come. I want to start with the draw, your draw to this time and this, we'll acknowledge, fictional space. Um, I think that the draw started for me really having recorded my albums in little houses and spaces on the south coast of New South Wales. So I was, you know, I grew up in the city. I grew up in Balmain and I was a very much a city person. But when I recorded my first album on night and then my second album and albums after that, I did that in these small towns um, around Kayama and Jamboree, Kangaroo Valley, Wilds Meadow. So I think that my creative energies were really situated in that area. So when I started my first novel, Goodwood, 
I was already there in a sense. Um, and I was already kind of in this 90s time frame because Goodwood featured a young narrator as a teenager. Well, she was a teenager when the, when these events took place in that book. So I knew as well what it was like to be a teenager in the 1990s. So I think that's where I started with Goodwood. And I didn't realise that I was writing a book that would lead to the next book that would then lead to the book after. And that's not to say that you need to read these books in order. They're totally standalone stories. But for people who do read all three books, they will notice, obviously, characters that come and go from each book. They'll notice similarities in settings. So Goodwood's a really small town. Cedar Valley, the second book, is a slightly bigger town. And then Clark, which is the book that I've just finished, is the big regional centre where the people from those little towns go to do their big shop at the Woolworths or go to the RTA or the Clark Plaza. So it's a slightly different setting in that it's a much bigger and more anonymous place um, but still has a certain, you know, ideas of affection and community for small town and for neighbourhood ship. City status since uh, 1979, I believe, uh, in Clark. Is that right? So um, I think that, yes, it was declared a city in 1979. One of the characters does mention that. <laughs> so, yes, although it's, it's described as a town. A lot of those regional towns we describe as town, but they're actually technically cities. Mm. So when I was writing this book, I was thinking of Nowra, for example. I was thinking of Maitland. I was thinking of Lismore. I was thinking of a lot of towns that I either have friends or family that live in or that I've done a lot of regional touring in as a musician, and all of them kind of blend into this one town that becomes Clark. We both we were talking off air about how, since we last spoke, we've both moved. We've both moved out of Sydney, and we're probably in spaces that more approximate places like Goodwood, Clark, Cedar Valley. Um, in that change, like obviously you've, you've toured, you've visited towns like this, but have you found living um, to be sort of, does it approximate the experience that you're writing? Um, I think it does to an extent. I think particularly the, as I said, the neighbourhood ship, I don't even know if that's a word. There is a great affection for the connections that can happen by way of being in proximity to people that you might we, you mightn't ordinarily connect with. I've had a really wonderful experience moving out of the city and being blessed with a street which is very neighbourhoody. Um, everyone does know everyone on our street. Um, it's a beautiful place to bring up our children. But in this book, I think that does translate into an idea that people can give each other comfort um, by being proximate and by sometimes inadvertent acts of sort of daily kindness. I think this book has a huge amount of sadness and grief and violence and darkness, but it's also tempered with the kind of humour that comes with those sort of interactions that you have daily with your neighbours. And, um, yeah, I guess that does mirror my own experience having moved out of the city. Yeah. I, I, and I agree. You have reminded me I've got to do the neighbour's lawn this weekend. Um, and, you know, talk about talk about like a street Christmas party, that sort of thing. It's, <laughs> like it's those extraordinary moments that really are. Like, you, you know, you, you, it's not that they don't exist um, in my or didn't exist in my life in Sydney, but they definitely feel just more sort of natural. <laughs> Yeah, I think there's just, I think in the city, you can absolutely find pockets of that. And I mean, I had a pocket of that where I, when I lived in Marrickville, which was beautiful. But I do think that you can also have experiences in the city among so many people and feel quite isolated. There's mm. potentially more of an expectation of that kind of dentancy of acquaintanceship and kinship in smaller communities, which is something that I have explored in all three books. Mm. Clark, 
feels almost like the embodiment of nothing much ever happens here kind of town. I mean, the, the concept of Clark as a book um, gives lie to that. But I also know, like, as Leone and her colleague Wanda meet each day at work, they frequently share sighs at the people and the attitudes in Clark. And it was interesting, not just for the nostalgia, but also the ways that the petty and casual racisms and sexisms that they're sighing at still feel so relevant. Did did those attitudes provide a fertile soil for the sort of darkness that you also explore in in Clark, but I guess also in all the all of, all of your books? Yeah, I do think that um, you know, for example, Goodwood was a more idealized notion of a town. That's not to say that that ideas like racism existed in Goodwood, um, and uh, certainly homophobia, because Goodwood contains a, a queer storyline. Um, in this book, I guess there is potentially more of a critique of that, that you know, I guess the downside of, of a regional Australian life, which can sometimes lead to a certain parochialism, which can then sometimes lead to xenophobia. And I think we've all been aware of, of how that can happen in, in regional areas and in city areas. Um, so Clark does provide some critique of, of that, um, what, what I think we're all familiar with, a very kind of colonial attitudes of, of, of white Australia that can exist in those places. But at the same time, you know, Leonie works in a travel agent, which lends itself to having a more diverse range of characters. Um, and I, I did enjoy those mild critiques, but at the same time, there's an affection that kind of balances, I think, the critiques. And, I mean, that's just what we get in a lot of regional towns. So I didn't want to shy away from that. Mm. Um, the darkness and light that we're sort of talking about here, this, the wonderful sense of community, but also uh, some of, I guess, those stagnant uh, conservative attitudes that can can also sort of muddy the waters, really just, I mean, they're, they're part of what draw me to your writing. They also just get me thinking about your writing, where does it sit? The gorgeous sunny covers that it, it honestly, I'm, I'm holding the book up. Beautiful radio here, Andrew. He holds up the cover for Holly to look at her own book. It's not like she's never seen it. I must have looked at this cover a dozen times before I looked closer and saw that around the hills hoist was the ex excavation, you know, sort of an, a, a picture, a pictorialization of the excavation of Barney's backyard. It, the cover itself is that juxtaposition of sunny and light. Um, You've been nominated for several Crime Writers Awards, including Sisters in Crime, um, the David Award, the Ned Kelly Award. But when I read your work, what really jumps out to me is the extraordinary humanity, the carefully drawn characters, the fact that these are um, very community-based stories. Um, they, they make me think of, I'm not sure if you'd even be aware, of a series, like a, a very British series from the last century, the Miss Reed novels, which are very um that yeah, exactly what they sound like <laughs> i think they're called the, the thrush cross green stories and and they're, they're all about village school type of things thinking about those two different types of stories and storytelling where do your stories actually fit for you in your mind um i think that i think you're right i mean i think that the emotionality of the characters is really my central focus and when you're talking about um the sort of stagnation of attitudes that can come out of parochialism. I think that's mirrored in um, the stagnation that that Leone feels emotionally. And a lot of the book is about Barney and Leone and how they're grieving and how they're dealing with their own pain and how they're processing their own pain. Um, and that was of great interest to me. In terms of the other thing you're talking about, which is the 
um, I guess, I, I don't know the books that you just referenced. I've not heard of that, but it sounds to me what would a genre that I've heard of only since I started writing these books, which is called cozy crime. <laughs> Someone, which is apparently a whole genre. There's no crime in these books. They're all just about village life. They're very much like. Oh, right. Okay. It, well, there's also genres of crime that are certainly have a kind of warm tone to them in a village. Like people have mentioned Midsummer Murders in relation to my books, which I've actually also never seen that television show, but. I think for me, my books are situated in um, being influenced when I was a teenager very strongly by Northern Exposure, which is a, a te- television, American television show, which you are nodding. I can see you remember. Moose walking down the street. Yeah, yeah, it was a moose walking down the street and it was so much more. It was very mm. an extremely eccentric show which portrayed a community of people who might otherwise not have connected with each other. It was quite strange. There was a certain bizarreness and a, and and the attitude, the, the kind of attitude to humor in the book, in the sorry, in the show, was really delightful and very charming. So I feel like that has been quite a strong influence on the kind of towns and the kind of acquaintanceships that I've drawn in these books. Um, I was also just in terms of tone um, influenced by In Cold Blood by Truman Capote and by the novels of Richard Yates like Revolutionary Road and by novels like The Virgin Suicides by Jeffrey Eugenides. Those are the books that when I was writing Goodwood, for example, were quite strongly in my mind around how those authors portrayed really dark subject matter, like sometimes just horrific. I mean, the end of Revolutionary Road just kills you. Um, and obviously the, the subject of In Cold Blood is about one of the most brutal sort of murders you could think of, but yet the books themselves are quite funny and the, the tone is mm. quite light and it, it doesn't pay any disrespect to the subject matter. In, in fact, it seems to almost give it, so just it just tempers it with a kind of gorgeous humanity and I was really interested in all of the books with using the structure of, of crime, um, because I did also read a lot of straight formulaic crime books when mm. I was younger. I don't so much anymore, um, but I did enjoy that just as a kind of ripping read. I did enjoy using some of those tropes, but then subverting those expectations and having the books really be about something altogether different. Mm. I believe also like part of the commentary around um, the, the the golden age and the more classic crime novels of you know the big the big names the um, the Dorothy L Sayers and Agatha Christie's of the world is that they set up these very bloodless crimes that can be solved and that's that is part of the coziness of it when not confronted with um, you know while there is a body we're not confronted with. Um, the, I mean, I'm thinking of Barney running through the stages of decomposition in his head. Um, <laughs> your your stories give us both the darkness and the incredible community, which um, is a very, it's a very different type. But it sounds like they're very much rooted in that that sort of crime. Um, and there is a, there is often a historical influence to to your stories as well as um, as I understand. Is that true for Clark as well? Um, well, certainly for Cedar Valley, mm. that book, my, my second book was um, not based on, but it draw this parallel, mm. which becomes something that, that is discussed within the book of a historic um, Australian mystery, which is now now quite solved, really. It was unsolved at the time, but it's getting more and more solved as the days go on. Uh, the Summerton Man, which if anyone's interested in Googling uh, the, one of the most bizarre episodes in Australian kind of unsolved mystery and death, then The Summerton Man is a really fascinating case. This one was sparked by a detail 
of the Lynette Dawson case. I was listening to the Teacher's Pet podcast along with about 50 million other people, as I understand it, um, and I find I found the case very fascinating, extremely sad, Um but the the main thing that sparked it was what you described as the beginning of Clark was was the fact that the police did search for Lynette Dawson's body at her former home in Bayview in um, in New South Wales, and that the people living in the house didn't know the history of the house they were living in. So that was the point that sort of sparked an interest for me in this book when the police arrive on Barney's doorstep in the very first pages of this novel, he doesn't realize that he's renting the house that Ginny Lawson had disappeared from. And of course, once he starts thinking about it, he realizes that he has some memory of the case, but he just didn't know that that was that house that he's in. So that was where I sort of started off. There are some other sort of nods to the, to the um, Lynette Dawson case in this book, but it very quickly became, you know, its own entirely fictional story. But I think the thing about that case is that it's so sadly similar to so many other cases where women, for example, have gone missing in adverted commas, um, and it has been a you know a case of domestic violence in in all probability, and the police have literally just believed a husband's uh, account, which makes very little sense to anyone who knew that woman and then turned a blind eye for decades. So the number of, you know, other podcasts I've listened to, which basically tell the same story on newspaper articles that I've listened to or the research that I did for this book around domestic violence cases, um, I think obviously a huge amount has changed in the last few years and even just days ago coercive control was criminalised in New South Wales, which is a really interesting development in, in the domestic violence kind of area. But... I think for a long time um, the police handling of these cases, much like the way the police ignored gay hate crimes in Sydney for decades mm. or any marginalised person, a person of colour who who is mistreated by police, these things often go un... Um, these people are not held to account basically. And so this, this book, while it is in some ways a kind of crime book, in inverted commas. It's certainly not a police procedural. They're very much in the background. And one of the reasons I wanted to do that was because it does certainly comment on police mishandling of a case like this. Um, it, it was actually, I, I found it really extraordinary the way you, um, I guess, sort of infused the book with these, these references to this happening because, of course, it has been... Um, it has been Leone's working theory for six years that Ginny's fate might be related to domestic violence. But you also drop in little mentions, uh, a reminiscence of an episode of Columbo that centred on uh, domestic violence, a story about a disgraced police officer who ha um, had been accused of domestic violence. And it felt like what you were saying is what's remarkable is not that this happens, but that it can go on in broad daylight and no one will do anything about it. This is a topic that we, I feel like we're developing uh, a vocabulary for. We, we are able to talk about this more openly. We're able to talk about it in more subtle ways. As you say, coercive control has been a big topic for years and it is now, um, it's now been criminalized. Was it, was it at all difficult to, to balance the, the competing narratives, because, of course, you can't write 1991 like it's 2022. Um, yeah, so what's the question? <laughs> oh, um, 
we're talk- we were talking just there about how um, how alive we are to this. We have a much more sophisticated yes. vocabulary for talking about yes. this. Yes. Did um did you ever find yourself checking yourself? Did you have to think about what the conversation was like in 1991? No, not really, because I mean, I certainly I did do a, a good amount of research, and there is a lot of dialogue available from people who have experienced such things at that time. I mean, I think if if mm. if you know uh, anyone mm. and their death has been or not their death, they've gone missing, for example, under yeah. under a scenario which seems entirely out of character to the person mm. that you've known, much like for example I, I was referencing the gay hate killings of of Sydney, Um, you know, for example, the man who helped solve his brother's murder because he knew that his brother would not have committed suicide. Mm. You know, there's people, if you know someone well enough, I don't think it's difficult to imagine the kind of conversations and attitudes you're going to have when the police, for example, are saying one thing, oh, she she committed suicide, she just left, she met another man and left her child for a new life or she joined a religious cult or all these kinds of things. I mean, no, I don't think it was difficult to imagine the way that Ginny's friends would react to that because it's just not believable to them um, and therefore they're up against this kind of, it's almost like being gaslighted by the system, you know. Um, so, no, I don't think much would have changed between then and now and I think, um, you know, sadly these kinds of cases, although people are taking domestic violence more seriously, there's a lot of other people in marginalised positions who are still falling through the cracks. Mm. It, it sounds like what you're saying here is it's less a matter of the conversation has changed and more that the broader public is alive to a conversation that has been had by people who were who were suffering this, who were facing this on a daily basis for decades. Exactly, exactly. Mm. Those voices have become slightly more heard, which mm. I think it can only be a good thing. Mm. We have... I don't know where to begin this question. Um, look, I want to actually, you, you talked a little bit about the opening of the novel and it is such an incredible hook. Um, was it like, was it hard? Did you did you have to do a lot of research to actually get that right? The police arriving, the the crime scene and just the ongoing details that you you pepper through the story, which, um, you know, really kind of drive forward the intrigue as, as Barney, as Leone are sort of trying to peer out their curtains and gather what is actually happening um, in Barney's backyard. Um, the first chapter came very kind of quickly and it sort of wrote itself in a sense, those first two chapters. So the first perspective we get is Leonie and Joe. So Leonie's caring for a four-year-old boy in the book who turns out very quickly we find out is not actually her son. So that's another sort of mystery of the book is where is Joe's mother and that chapter and then the next chapter where we get Barney's perspective then on the same thing, on the police arriving. Um, I... I felt very much like this book I did want to drop straight in, you know, like I wanted to, and the whole book is um, is very show, not tell. Like the, every, all of the revelations and the, the entire story is told with these interactions between characters and then the reader will deduce. There's not a huge amount of sort of backstory shared except from what we can glean from what is the action that's happening. So that was a kind of conscious choice as to how to write the narrative. In terms of the, in terms of the research, in terms of the police search, 
I do have a contact who's a retired detective, um, a guy called Bob Wells, who I've spoken to for all three of my books. He was introduced to me. I've never actually met him. We've only had long phone conversations, which are very enjoyable. Um, I was introduced to him through a friend who's also an author and who has written true crime books. Um, Bob Wells was a former detective sergeant from the Hunter region, and he is now retired but was working on exactly this type of thing in exactly the time that I was writing. So I'm able to call him with a, I wait till I have a really, really long list of questions. We only had two phone calls about this book because my questions were so lengthy. I'd finished the entire draft and then went back in and was able to add, for example, just the types of language that the police might use um, and the types of, you know, what a search would look like and for that kind of thing, just to make, you know, for what my English teacher would have um, called a sense of verisimilitude to the book, which really just means to make it look real. Did Bob put you onto the types of exotic cats that detectives might keep? Uh, Bob did not have anything to do with exotic cats, although, yes, the police within his book does have a certain interest in exotic cats. I love it. I loved it. <laughs> Leonie and Barnia, they're, they're drawn together ostensibly by their proximity to this search, Leonie's connection to the search, but they also share this, I guess, sense of the past as, as a bruise that's painful to touch, and it really it, t- it taints their sense of the present, their hope for the future. Um and as you pointed out, um, Leonie cares for Joe, who is not her son. Barney is living alone in a rented house, but he still wears a wedding ring. And these are mysteries that unfold through the novel as well. Was it difficult to balance writing characters who are existing very much in the now with this uh, you know, mystery unfolding in the backyard, but are also very much in their own memory? Um, It was an interesting technical exercise to work in the flashbacks in the book um, because you put it very beautifully then, the metaphor of the bruise I really enjoyed. And I think it's a really gorgeous way of putting the way that Barney and Leonie are both moving through the world. And there are, in a a sense, three women who are missing in the novel when the novel begins. There's obviously Ginny Lawson, who the police are searching for, but there is also Joe's mother. We don't know what happened to her as the book begins. Begins, and Barney's wife, we also don't know where she is. And, and he has this kind of ongoing internal reflex that everything that happens to him, he wants to tell his 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 mm-hmm. wife, Deb. Um, and every time something happens of note, for example, the police arriving to search his backyard for a body, all he thinks of is that he wants to be able to tell Deb and, of course, he can't. So it's sort of there's a lot in terms of having a bruise. I mean, that's a, a, a sort of way I guess of of exploring how he's Mm. unable to process the reality of his situation and still living somewhat in the past. Um, I did provide these flashbacks throughout the book. Um, They're kind I mean, I didn't want to overdo them, but they give a sense of of Barney and Leonie and where they've come from that I'd never done that before. And I found that slightly tricky I guess to incorporate but at the same time by the last draft I felt that they naturally were embedded throughout the narrative in a way that I was really happy with and that was you know you always want to just do something slightly different right with each Mm. book or with each record Um, and I felt that it was a nice way of giving this emotional context to these people who then kind of come together in the book and and provide each other some comfort around what she, what is this kind of horrific thing that's taking place in the backyard. Yeah. The and the unearthing. I 
I mean, I, I'm going to assume it was intentional that the unearthing of Barney's backyard is mirroring this unearthing of Barney's past, of Leonie and Joe's past. Um, and I just, I just want to focus in again on Barney because Barney is in, he's kind of in this self-imposed exile from his own life. There's this incredible sadness that accompanies his sense of loss. We talked off air about some of the ways you you dive into that sadness. Um, we'll leave that for the readers to discover. It also felt like you were showing us this, this real sort of double-edged sort of, of love because, I mean, I, I would assume you, I know I, myself, I, I was reading those moments and thinking, I would do that. I would, if I didn't have my person, I would be thinking, I want to share this with them because you you weave your lives around each other and they become intrinsic to how you live your life. And it was, it was very, it was so very hard and, um, and a little bit tragic to watch that because I thought, you know, you throw yourself completely into love as Barney obviously has, and it can leave you in that vulnerable state. Uh, please don't ask me for a question here. Let's take that as a comment. <laughs> <laughs> um, in answer to the slight, well, slight question about whether the unearthing was deliberate, um, I don't know if those things are deliberate so much as you get to the end of the draft and you see this, you know, especially as an ex-English student from university, you work out how to read someone else's book in regards to recurring motifs and recurring tropes. Um, there is a lot around the earth in this book around sort of putting in and taking out Um whether it's the garden that is across the street at Dory and Clive's house or whether it is the excavation of the yard or whether it is the way that Barney connects with um, his past, him and his wife were very keen bushwalkers. Um, there is a lot of um, reference, I think, to things coming in and out of the earth in the book. But I think that Barney's... Um, Barney's sort of sadness, I guess, was incredibly poignant. And in the same way that Leonie is a travel agent who has never travelled, um, there's a certain there's such a poignancy to her as well. They they kind of they have such a different approach to how they interrelate with the world and with other people. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know what I'm answering now either because I wasn't sure if that was a question. But <laughs> it was really. Yeah. I, I think I just wanted. I think I just wanted to sort of bring up that you showed us this this incredible, like, I think this is one of the things that makes love extraordinary. And you show us this in Barney because there is an incredible danger when you love that the thing that you love um, may not always be there to be loved. And that's what, that's what he no. is. That's what he is and dealing I, with. Yeah. I think that also when that happens, you can lose yourself, you know, you lose, mm. you, you can lose your partner. And then you also in the process of losing your partner, lose yourself. And Barney has lost himself. He's very far away from who he used to be when the book begins. Um, and there's a certain sense of the reader, I think, at the beginning of the book, really hoping that he can connect with the person that he used to be. And there is a lot of themes about identity in the book, about what makes a person who they are, what what makes a person kind of have continuity across their life and how that can change and how when a person does change for whatever reason, how that then affects the people around them. So I was, you know, and then that's also reflected in in Joe's, some of Joe's dialogue. There's a line, it was really lovely writing dialogue for a four-year-old, but there's a line where he says to Leonie, when I'm older, will I still be Joe? And that's actually a question my daughter asked me with her own name at the end of the <laughs> at the end of the sentence. And sometimes children present you with these incredibly kind of 
you know, metaphysical questions that are so um, mind-bending to answer as a parent. And my children have asked me some questions that have completely thrown me. And it was interesting to kind of write that in for Joe. At the time I wrote it in the draft, I didn't think much of it apart from that it was a kind of an adorable question. But at the end of the book, it becomes more and more relevant as to like, what makes a person, what what will make him Joe until the end of his life. And that's sort of mirrored by some of the other characters in the book. Mm. And of course, no spoilers for the mystery at the heart of Clark, but I, I feel like I want to, after I got a bit heavy there, I want to throw a tiny spoiler into, um, I guess, uh, Leonie and Barney's sense of loss, because against um, Barney's searching you you show us the community and the heart of the community and i mean it really sort of struck me that over the last 3 years or so like our collective sense of community has shifted and changed i don't know whether that influenced you i don't know whether that was on your mind at all but um what did you want to say about community and coming together um i don't think it was necessarily on my mind as as much as it has, has ever been you know like I, it's, that's always been on my mind in a sense um to sound like a will oldham song but i think that you know in, in in all the books there is a sense of what people can give each other and and people connecting to someone who might be slightly unlikely for them to connect to some of the most important relationships in my life have been with people that I would never have expected to have such a strong connection with. For example, my friend and mentor, Richard Walsh, who I've worked with with all three of these books. He's a, I think Richard's 81. He's um, become such a close friend that I've told him things I've never told anyone. And we share a very, very intimate friendship, which is just absolutely delightful to me as a connection in my life. And I just wouldn't have expected to have one of my closest friends be an 81 year old man. <laughs> and that's, I think when you connect over whatever it is you connect on, we could talk, we talk about books, we talk about politics. Um, but I think that for me in this book, there is a certain celebration for a sometimes ignored friendship between, you know, mm-hmm. middle-aged grieving neighbors. It's not something that's often kind of um, explored. I mean, in some ways um, the book by Kent Haruf called Our Souls at Night um, kind of com- comes to mind when I think of Clark. I read it years ago and I, I can't remember the actual, but th- there's something about just that idea of someone seeking companionship or not, but finding it anyway. Um, and someone I did an interview with the other day said that when they finished this book, they went and gave their neighbour um, a jar of jam <laughs> and that, that that this book inspired them <laughs> to do that. And I thought that was one of the best compliment I could ever have received as an author because it is the sort of small acts of kindness that do really propel this book and that these characters that inadvertently comfort each other was just a really a real joy to write on the page. Absolutely. I love that. And as I was just thinking there about how we'll wrap up our conversation, um, and I don't often truck in morals, you know, we don't we don't have to get to a conversation and say that a story necessarily has a moral. People definitely need to go out and discover Clark for all its mystery and its heart. And perhaps yeah. also just take away from it that don't wait for the police to come around and dig up their backyard. Go and say hello to your neighbour today. Go and dig up your neighbor's backyard, you know, yeah. you never know what you might find. Um, yeah, look, I, I think it's funny because I certainly never, never intend to give any kind of message with my mm. books. Like these are the things that you learn to talk about once you've talked about your book 10 times. And I wasn't even really conscious of these themes in a lot of ways. Like it's just a kind of authorial attitude that comes through. But then 
when she said that she when this woman said that she delivered the jam I thought well that's like that's just so nice you know and I I feel that um I feel that you know maybe at this time the books that I want to read personally are books where I want to be friends with the characters. I want to hang out with the characters. I'd love to have a beer with them. You feel sad when the book ends, you know, it's a book like still life by Sarah Winman, which is one that I really, really loved this year. I just wanted to go and hang out with them every evening. And that that's the kind of book that I want to read right now. And maybe that is a reflection of how crap it's been for the last few years and why I don't want to watch, like I've never watched succession, for example, because everyone tells me that they're all assholes. I don't want to hang out with assholes. I want to hang out with people that nourish me. <laughs> Amazing. That is, that is actually a fabulous note to leave on. Um, and I, I think, for anyone who is yet to discover, I called it before the Holly Throsby extended universe, Clark Goodwood, Cedar <laughs> Valley. <laughs> they are definitely characters. Um, some may even surprise you that you would want to have a beer with. And speaking with Holly Throsby, her new novel is called Clark. And it's an absolute pleasure to, um, to have had the chance to chat again, Holly. Yeah, thanks. You, you too. Thanks for having me on again. That is it for this great conversation with Holly Throsby. Holly's new book is called Clark. It is out now from Alan and Unwin. Final Draft is recorded on the lands of the Darug and Gunungurra people. You can catch it every week on 2SER. Just tune your dial to 107.3 if you're in Sydney. If you are anywhere else in the world, you can listen in online. 2SER is available on digital radio. Just go to 2SER.com. Now, I am Andrew Popel. I, I, um, I, I research, I present, I produce this show. It is so great to be sharing Australian books with you. And if you want to stay in touch, if you want to reach out to me, if you want to share what you're reading, something that you've discovered, well, you will find Final Draft on all the socials. Just look for our handle. It's at Final Draft 2SER. If you subscribe in your podcast app, it means a new conversation with an Australian author every week and bonus episodes like our little book club segment. Thank you for joining me. I will be back next week with more incredible conversations with Australian authors on Final Draft. Till then, I wish you what I wish you every day, every week. Happy reading. Hope you're getting lost in a good book. Bye now.